Welcome to Frankly Speaking. This is a new podcast on responsible business by Frank Bold, the European public interest law firm. I'm Richard Howitt, and after several years of debating responsible business issues inside the European Parliament, I'm hosting these discussions on the latest political, legal and business developments in the field of corporate sustainability, business and human rights. We speak frankly and personally about what moves policymakers, business and activists to make responsible business the norm. Today, frankly speaking, welcomes Professor Beata Schurfjell, head of the research group on sustainability law at the University of Oslo. Beata publishes extensively on company law, corporate governance and the integration of sustainability in the role of the company board. She helps lead an international network of women business scholars called the Daughters of Temis, the Greek Goddess of Justice. And she led the five-year EU project on sustainable market actors for responsible trade, SMART. Beata said recently, to get real about integrating sustainability, we need to go to company law. Beata, welcome to Frankly Speaking. Thank you so much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Now up front, let's deal with shareholder privacy. There's a lot of people in a lot of companies around Europe and around the world that think if they don't put shareholder interest first, they're going to be acting illegally and get into trouble. Uh, you've written and spoken extensively about this. Are they right? Well, we have to distinguish here between shareholder primacy and shareholder value. So shareholder value is a legal norm that we find at one end of the spectrum of all the various company law jurisdictions. So like, for example, in the UK, shareholder value is a legal norm that says that, that shareholder interest must be prioritized. But shareholder primacy is something else. Shareholder primacy is a social norm that doesn't exist as a legal norm in any company law jurisdiction that we know of. And we've investigated very, very many across the world in our comparative analyses, because shareholder primacy is a norm that dictates that boards should regard themselves as agents for the shareholders and maximize returns for shareholders, and then also implicitly damn everything else, uh, or leave everything else, I should say, perhaps more politely, to, to other areas uh, of law to deal with. And that is uh, a very important distinction that often is not made. But if shareholder value is there a legal norm, in what way does that allow other interests, stakeholder interest, environmental, social interest to come into the picture? Well, interestingly enough, in uh, the most explicit uh, shareholder value country that we have in Europe, namely the UK, the UK Companies Act says directly that also other interests must be considered. Uh, and... Um, we have uh, at other ends of the spectrum, we have uh, the, a range of countries that have a more pluralistic approach to the interests of the company where other interests must be considered. Uh, but most of all, the distinction is about how to promote the interests of the company. So whether we regard the interests of the company as being about the interests of the shareholder uh, and then taking into account some other interests, or if we regard the interests of the company as being about the economic interests uh, of of the company itself and uh, the interest of, uh, of employees and of local communities and of the global environment, Whatever approach we take to this, uh, 
promoting the interests of the company for the sake of the company itself and for that matter for the shareholders means running responsible companies because running an irresponsible company may give um, good returns for a while, but sooner or later, it is going to, to backfire in a whole range of ways. Which brings us to fiduciary duty. There's a very hot debate going on in the United States at the moment with some political opponents saying that fiduciary duty is absolutely uh, opposed to ESG, environment, social governance. What do you say to them? Well, I say to them that it's uh, time to, to wake up and orient themselves about the state of the world, because whatever approach one, one takes to, to why companies exist, why legislators allow them to exist and promote them as a dominant form for doing business, this, the situation is that the the risks, the financial and corporate risks of continued unsustainability of climate change, of biodiversity loss, of human rights violations, of lack of decent work, of tax evasions, and so on and so on. All of these impact directly also uh, on the, the business of the company. Uh, they can, a company can carry on as if the world doesn't matter for some time, but sooner or later, these, these range of financial and corporate risks will be realized. And that means that any board and any senior executive management, CEO, CEO if you want in the US speak, that wants to do its job properly must align the way the, the business is run with uh, also the, the larger interests of, of society. Uh, one example here is the international trend of lawsuits. So that's the liability risk of continued unsustainability that is being realized. And that's just one of them. So any board member who ignores climate change, who ignores biodiversity loss, who thinks that human rights violations down in global value chains don't matter, are not doing their job. Also uh, seen assessed based on, on ordinary mainstream uh, analysis of what, uh, what what it means to run a business well. Indeed, and you know, in both your answers there, the, the difference between the short term and the long term sort of cried out. Uh, and for me, I get, I, I get frustrated. I think we've known for years now from the World Economic Forum risk report that a majority of the risk to companies are external to do with climate and society. We've known since the TCFD, Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosure, now six years ago, that climate is a financial risk issue for the companies. So for that to be said not to be consistent with fiduciary duty, um, uh, it is a, it's a wake up. It's a wake up issue, as, as you say. Uh, and I, and I think you referred there, I referred to the US, you referred to the UK, but I think you've got views about the about corporate governance uh, and other frameworks around Europe, which are very different to the Anglo-Saxon tradition on this. Could, could you explain that? Yes, um, that's, a, that's a very good point. Uh, and it's and something, one that is very important to raise because the Anglo-American debates and the Anglo-American ways of, of seeing business and governance in the world uh, have for far too long dominated also continental European discussions. Uh, but on this um, 
spectrum uh, of the, the different ways uh, company law in different jurisdictions approach the issue of corporate purpose and the interests of the company, we have a lot of jurisdictions in continental Europe that take this more pluralistic approach. And uh, it is only under the influence of this very uh, Anglo-American and law and economics informed shareholder primacy drive that, uh, that we've that, that both some, some scholars and policymakers and businesses uh, in uh, uh, also in continental Europe have uh, taken shareholder primacy as uh, as the norm. And uh, are there some countries you would quote there that give that have that alternative approach? Well, it's not even an alternative approach. That's the thing. I mean, we I think we need to get away from uh, this idea that uh, the Anglo-Saxon way of doing things is the norm and anything else is alternative. So in Europe, we have very many countries besides the UK, which also has decided to, to leave uh, the EU, um, that take a much broader approach than shareholder value in uh, its uh, its company law. Uh, I can mention Norway, the country where, where I'm based. I can mention Germany and the Netherlands. Uh, most countries in continental Europe are uh, leaning more towards the pluralistic understanding of the interests of the company and further away from the shareholder value based uh, that, that we have in the UK. And that has also come in over the years in uh, in some uh, European, uh, continental European countries, like for example Finland, but but the problem is that this Anglo-American-based law and economics-inspired idea of shareholder primacy, the idea that maximizing returns for shareholders also maximizes societal wealth, so it sounds very, very alluring, very simple. We just measure one thing, and then everything else goes well. Uh, that idea has unfortunately also encroached upon much of the continental European discussion. And therefore, a very important point for me in this discussion is to actually go back to company law proper and not just to discuss on this more superficial level of, of what people think uh, should be the way business is run. Because company law provides the regulatory infrastructure for business, for companies, and therefore for, for the governance of companies. But it is it has, to a very great extent, been sidelined in these important debates. And there will be many people amongst, frankly speaking, listeners who are the sort of activists and the NGOs and so on, who will say, what about stakeholder interests here? And um, we've even had the, the Business Roundtable in the States tool saying that uh, now it's their duty to serve stakeholders, not shareholders. We've had the World Economic Forum announcing that we live in a new era of stakeholder capitalism. But very interestingly, you, you don't say that we replace shareholder primacy with stakeholder primacy, do you? No, uh, not at all. And exactly the way you formulated it now also shows how problematic that would be. Because if we were to replace shareholder primacy with stakeholder primacy, that would mean that those stakeholders, however we understand that term, uh, those stakeholders with, uh, with the greatest power, the, the, the loudest voices, the best access to boards, to senior executive management, would, would get to, to control 
the governance. So boards should never have abdicated their decision-making to shareholders, and they cannot do it to stakeholders either. So, uh, if it's not either being maximised, in the end, it's down to judgment of the board member, is it? Uh, they ha have to operate independently in the interest of the company, and they have to weigh up those different interests. It's no one else who's, who's going to do it for them. Is that, is that what you're saying? Basically, that is what company law says, which has been sidelined in this debate. So company law has, has always uh, given the boards um, the responsibility to find out how to govern the, the company that they're sitting on the board of. Uh, and of course, within within the framework of applicable legislation, within the framework of the Articles of Association, where the shareholders in the general meeting have the say on what they should look like. But within that, is, it is the responsibility of the board. And a great fallacy of our time is to think that um, we can set one guideline for the board, namely maximize profit for shareholders and for listed companies do that by following closely the share price and try to get that as high as possible and then everything will be well. Any business leader knows that that governing a business is is complex and is full of different trade-offs and decisions that need to be taken continuously. So the discussion instead of instead of us also in continental Europe positioning ourselves within this shareholder versus stakeholder debate, which is also an Anglo-Saxon thing. It's not a, a continental European debate. It's something we've imported and and which which uh, somehow diminishes this discussion. So instead of going into that debate from the perspective of, of the research that, that we've been doing in, in my research group over more than a decade and with large international teams of researchers, we would rather like to discuss how can the regulatory infrastructure for, for governance of companies set out a clear enough mandate for the boards so that they when they make their own decisions on what is the best way to govern this company, to promote the interest of this company, that they can do that in a way that contributes to sustainable value creation and contributes to staying within planetary boundaries. That, that is the discussion we, we, we should be having, not shareholder versus stakeholders. That's just confusing the issue. That doesn't mean that, if, if I can just add, that doesn't mean that we don't think that stakeholders as people and interests affected should be taken into to consideration, but not in that way. They, that should rather be a part of a good and um, well thought through and properly carried out sustainability due diligence. And we've got board members and directors organizations listening. You, that key concept for you is is um, uh, about sustainable value. So say a bit more about what you mean by that and, and what those board members should take away mm. from, from that. Yeah, thank you. So sustainable value creation is an emerging concept now in corporate governance. 
corporate governance codes uh, across Europe are being reformed. And in quite a few of those reforms, in, uh, sustainable value creation has come in at least as a complementary concept to the, the focus on, on shareholders. And in some cases, even, even putting sustainable value creation first. And, and I think that, that is a very helpful concept because, again, any business leader, if they spoke freely about what they see their job as, they probably wouldn't say that it's to maximize returns for shareholders. It would, it would be to say that we are creating value with our business, creating value for the business itself and for the various uh, parties involved in that, for, for the local communities and so on. And the new thing that is now coming in is that that value creation should be sustainable. It should be one that doesn't harm people, but that contributes to, to protecting them, that doesn't engage in human rights violation, that doesn't exploit people uh, to, to get the products made as cheaply as possible, um, and that doesn't engage in, in environmental destruction or tax evasion or corruption. In, and many of these issues is actually about following the law. Lack of legal compliance is also an issue that is not discussed so much in these debates. So following the law, following the intentions of the law, and in addition, uh, doing what every business can to contribute to sustainability to a sustainable future. Because without a sustainable future, there will be no good returns for shareholders and no profits for business either. We are in, a, in an existential crisis as a global society. And you say that board members should also take into account planetary boundaries. Now, for those who are involved in donut economics and work that's gone on, in the United Nations since the 1970s, that's not at all new. But I guess many board members would say they would widen their eyes and they would say planetary boundaries. How, how on earth am I supposed to take those into account in my decision making in these thousand pages of papers that I've got to, to read and deliberate on? Uh, what, what advice would you give about how you start to do that? Mm, that's a that's a very very good uh, uh, point, and I understand that it can be totally overwhelming to think how how to include this concept of of, of planetary boundaries, which basically is a a um, framework that has been uh, set up by uh, natural scientists from different fields to try to express more clearly what all of us intuitively understand that if we think about it, that there must be limits to how much we can take out of nature and dump back into nature, whether it's in, in, uh, in the air or in the sea or in the ground or in the freshwater, and still expect this planet to be a relatively safe space for us. Uh, so combining an understanding of that with, um, you mentioned donut economics, so we can use those terms. So think of, of planetary boundaries, the ecological limits, and think of securing social foundations for people now and for the future. Then we have that space within which we want business to operate. We don't want business to contribute to, to the environmental crises of our times, and we do want business to contribute to treating 
people fairly and giving them a chance as at, at good lives. Does that mean that any every business uh, leader listening to this must now think if I'm going to take this seriously, I need to read through all of all of the the scientific literature and all of the academic research? No. Uh, all, always it must be about what is this business involved in? And then finding out what is relevant for me and my business, considering what I'm doing. And there are there's no lack of, of people and organizations who are happy to help businesses understand what this means if they want to. So it's, it's about asking the right questions. Can, can I continue using this material? Can I continue using this kind of a process for producing the products that I sell and so on? So it's about asking, asking the right questions and just really internalizing that, that, that very basic fact that we understand if we think about it, that it's not possible to continue with an over-expectation of, of nature and destroying the very basis of our existence and expect that to go well into the future. And that whole concept of planetary boundaries, thresholds, social foundations, I'm hoping we'll come back to that in a later edition of Frankly Speaking. Now, now I've deliberately talked in principle about uh, the questions we discussed, but there is a, a bit of legislation on the table at the moment going through the European institutions, the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, known as CS Triple D. Uh, and there's quite a hot debate about how far that should or shouldn't go in terms of putting sustainability obligations on board members. What do you hope to see in that legislation and why? Well, what, what, I, what I would would hope to see, first of all, is company law being included in the regulatory toolbox. There is no no logical reason for company law to be the one area of law that is kept out of the discussion when we now include finance, regulation of institutional investors, in a regulation of banks, of public procurers, of consumers. Uh, every area of law is now being considered. But when company law is when when uh, the commission opened up to discuss company law, then suddenly all hell breaks loose, and then this is going to be the end of of business. Uh, and and it's it it it's it's so very ideological and emotional. And and this goes back to to shareholder primacy and the way company law has been partly sidelined and partly become to be seen as as a basis for for shareholders um, for maximization of returns for shareholders, while company law provides the regulatory infrastructure for companies. Without company law, we wouldn't have companies as we have them now. So, including company law in the debate of how to ensure um, sustainable value creation in business and sustainable finance, sustainable public procurement, which are all connected, it, it's, it's just one other part of law that should be included. But instead, uh, the, the, the very idea from the first day when the Commission put out its Sustainable Corporate Governance Initiative, then it's, it's, it's released all of these ideological and emotional reactions. Um, so, so what I would wish is that company law could be uh, taken seriously into the discussion, that we could talk about this 
like uh, grown-ups without uh, uh, falling back into the shareholder versus stakeholder trap, but rather talk about does company law today give the, the best kind of mandate for for governance of business? Interestingly, you argue, I believe, that it shouldn't all go in company law. You're, you're, you know, I think there are some indirectors organizations that are fearful that this is a bit of a power grab by the European Commission and they're happier for it to be at the nation state level and in the national corporate governance codes. And you have some sympathy with that argument. So I believe, t tell me I'm wrong, uh, but what should go in the, the company law bit at the European level and what should stay at the member state mm. level? That's, a, that's also a very good point. So what should stay on the member state level is um, developing the concept of the interest of the company. There we have a variety across Europe, although we have more pluralistic approaches than, than often uh, included in the debate, but that should be left to, to each uh, member state to develop. But all of these issues related to um, governance of business across national borders, which is the norm today, um, namely that uh, that companies are a part of corporate groups and um, engage in, are a part of, or, or lead global value chains, con contractual-based value chains. All of that is just calling for for the EU to regulate. It's the, it's the classic textbook example of when EU uh, legislation is needed. Uh, and that is also why over 70% of the business respondents in the, that large study on due diligence that Lisa Smith and colleagues undertook, over 70% of business respondents said, give us mandatory rules on due diligence. Now we are seeing member states develop them. We are seeing various forms of due diligence rules uh, coming in, in France, in Norway, in Germany, in the Netherlands. And that is creating a very chaotic picture for business. So, so therefore, we need EU rules uh, on, on that level. And that argument for legal certainty is one that is often argued by businesses as well. However, there is a nervousness amongst company directors on the issue of liability. Uh, they're worried if suddenly they become personally liable for stuff that's going on in the company's supply chain that they didn't really know about. And, and they, so they would prefer, I'm not saying everyone, I think there's a, a, a debate with arguments on both sides, but some would prefer uh, that the liability aspects of the CSDDD are, are toned down. Uh, where do you stand on that? Well, I totally understand that um, that um, decision makers in businesses are worried about liability, um, but but it is not a case of liability possibly being introduced uh, through the corporate sustainability due diligence directive. Liability is already out there, and it is totally unpredictable today, because uh, these established truths that uh, a parent company isn't responsible for what happens in the subsidiaries in a corporate group and definitely that a lead company isn't responsible for what happens down in contractual con contracts-based global value chains. These are now very much under pressure and basically being dismantled. And this goes back to the international trend of lawsuits that I mentioned. So it is totally impossible today for a board member or a senior executive management to know whether they... Uh, 
will be sued today or tomorrow or next year for something that has happened. So that is why I think that so many business respondents wanted mandatory due diligence rules. Because if we have very clear rules on how businesses uh, should undertake due diligence and what they should do with the results, then we, then we could finally get a level playing field and we would have legal certainty. Because if a company has undertaken a proper due diligence throughout its global value chains and followed up those uh, issues that they find um, in a good way, then the chance then of being held liable in court are very, very low. Um, but the, the risk of undertaking such processes while other companies are just continuing as they've always been doing and engaging in various forms for sustainability washing, that is very difficult. So we have a lack of level playing fields and high legal uncertainty today. So what businesses should be fighting for is a corporate sustainability due diligence directive that gives them a level playing field and legal certainty. The weaker the, the directive is uh, when it is finally adopted, the, the more legal uncertainty people in business will have. It's not it's going very, to go away. They'll just be sued instead. A very clear call. We're nearly at time, Beata, but I've, uh, uh, it's a privilege to have you on, uh, not least because you lead this international women's business academic network, the delightfully named Daughters of Tabis. Um, many sustainability professionals listening to this podcast will are, are, are wrestling with the gender issue as part of what they're seeking to do. Give us a, a closing note on, I think you say, say gender is an agent of change for business. What, what do you mean by that? Yes, we've discussed that in, in, in one of the edited volumes that we've published, uh, that one with Cambridge University Press, um, where the, where the gender can be an agent uh, for change. And uh, I do think it, it can be, and it is, but it's not um, a silver bullet. And especially it's not a silver bullet in the sense that if we just put women into boards, uh, then everything will change. So I do think that uh, gender is very important in the sense of breaking up groupthink, whether it's in the boardroom or in the department of a university. So I, I do think that women, including myself, have brought in an outsider perspective and different ways of thinking about things. Uh, when I started on my doctoral thesis, I was told very clearly that I could not bring environmental and human rights issues into company law because that was not the way it was done. <laughs> and I did it, and uh, it, it was the start of... Uh, of over a decade of uh, of international research projects, so bringing women in is important, um, but it's 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 one part of a, of a broad issue, and there are of course other diversity uh, issues uh, as well. Um, so, so for for anybody who is who is interested in having a a good board that will help guide them towards sustainable value creation, then having a diverse board both in terms of, of gender and in terms of race, in terms of background. If it's in a multinational enterprise, they should also seek to have um, 
have uh, people from countries that they that they have a big presence in, for example, those those uh, issues are very important. But we need a whole jigsaw puzzle of sustainability into place. Gender is one part, one piece. Company law is another piece. Due diligence is an important piece. So let's not leave any of them outside when we're trying to get the whole jigsaw puzzle into place. Beata, throughout your career, you've challenged groupthink. And if I may say, your research has been an agent for change. It's a privilege to have you on. You've argued in this podcast that uh, shareholder primacy is not a legal norm, it's a social norm, and that many countries have a much more pluralistic view of how company interest can be defined. Uh, you've argued that board members should pursue sustainable value creation within banished pre-boundaries. And you've argued that liability exists whether companies like it or not, and that the current uh, corporate sustainability due diligence directive in Europe will actually provide more legal certainty to, to, to businesses. Thank you very much to Beata. Sadly, we have come to the end of our podcast, but we would like to invite all of our audience to send us your feedback to frankly speaking at frankbold.org. And of course, to share this conversation, you've been listening to Frankly Speaking, the Frank Bold podcast on responsible business. Watch out for our next episode and find out more about Frank Bold's responsible companies section on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Thank you again to Beata and to all of you for joining us. Do join us next time and goodbye. 